The sermon text is Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13, and you can find it on page 568 in your paperback Bibles. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I'm the least, the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. So if you've been with us this spring and summer, you know that we have been working through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And we are coming... um, Near the end, we've got two more weeks after this. Um, We are in the middle now of chapter 3. So I want to recap where we are, as I always like to, um, to orient us. um, And then we will um, look at what the Lord says in this passage here. Um, So what's been happening, um, just a a brief summary of what we've had. In the first chapter of Ephesians, uh, you really had two main parts. The first part uh, is is a doxology a really uh, elevated, lofty sort of praise uh, of God uh, and his virtuosity and his artistry uh, in saving us, um, in making his choice to save us before the foundation of the world and then working out his ability to do that uh, through uh, normal processes of history. And it's quite a remarkable thing that he's able to do that. And then in the second part, uh, Paul, as he's writing this, begins to pray for the people he's writing to. I mean, as we've talked about, it's us. He's not just writing this to one church, but this was a circular letter that was going all around. uh, And uh, Paul is praying for all of the people that read it, including us. He's praying that we would know God and experience God's power. And then in chapter 2, he begins to digress from that prayer and explain what he means in that prayer. And he tells us, about God's gracious salvation uniting all people. We tend to think, as we look at uh, what is in chapter 2 about salvation is by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. We, we tend to primarily think about that as our individual salvations. And it is. It is our individual salvations. But the point that the apostle is making in chapter 2 is not simply that we are each individually saved by grace, but the result of the fact that we are saved by grace is that it unites us. It tears down the walls between us. It tears down any posturing, any spoiling sport, uh, any uh, puffing ourselves up, any comparison, any boasting. It tears it down, and particularly it tears down the dividing wall that God himself set up between Jews and Gentiles in order to display his grace, in order to display his righteousness, and in order to work that salvation in history. And that brought us to the end of chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he begins to pick up his prayer again. So if you take a look uh, at chapter 3 and look at the first verse, and we talked about this last week, notice that he says, uh, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, and then there's this dash. You know, there are no dashes in Greek, but the translators put it there because he interrupts the sentence. He very obviously interrupts the sentence. 
Um, and then if you look back at verse 14, he picks that sentence up again in verse 14. I, therefore, uh, bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so everything in between verses 1 and 13 is this sort of digression in which he is explaining what he means that he is the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Uh, probably a shocking thing for his readers to hear, that he's the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Um, occasionally, folks will talk about this particular passage, just verses 1 to 13, or verses, really verses 2 to 13. They'll talk about it uh, as if uh, he goes off topic, as if he kind of interrupts himself and says, oh, what a surprise, I just said that. Uh, I just realized after I said that that I'd better explain something about being a prisoner of the Lord. And I think that that's not quite right. It's, it's true that the language is very, very clumsy. I think as we've talked about, Paul was not a good writer in Greek. Um, it's very awkward construction. It's not his first language, and you could tell. Um, but I don't think that it's an accident. I think that he had, he's not extemporizing. Uh, he knows what he's doing, and he begins to say, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, assuming, and he begins to make that digression. You look at verse 2. So we're picking up that digression and what he's explaining about what it means to be a prisoner of the Lord. And his whole point in this digression is he realizes and he knows that talking about being the prisoner of the Lord, the fact that he is, he is in fact, in prison as he is writing this, the fact that he's in prison is possibly uh, and probably very distressing to his hearers. And, it, and maybe it ought to be distressing to us, too. And we don't know the man. Um, he never, like, came around and preached in our church as he did uh, probably to, certainly did to the Ephesians and probably to most of the churches that read this the first time around. Um, so they would have had more of an emotional investment in him and, and more of a personal grief at his imprisonment. Yet... It's probably and should be distressing to us too. Because here is a man who is, uh, as he talks about in this passage, really, really devoted his life to God's service. Uh, really went above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, laid down his life. Um, and eventually, as history tells us, literally laid down his life. Um, this imprisonment um, ultimately ends in his death. Um, if someone who is as good and as righteous and as selfless and as committed to Jesus as Paul is, uh, has this happened to him, um, maybe it makes the rest of us a little bit nervous too. And in fact, it probably ought to. So the very last thing that he says in verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So this whole digression, verses 2 to 13, is really leading to this point, to ask them, don't lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Don't lose heart. All right. The temptation to lose heart is very real. Um, it's a really uh, good thing, I think, that he is... Uh, picking up this subject. Um, after every, all the lofty things that he has just said about God's power and about God's glory and about God's artistry and about God's skill and about his salvation and about saving us by grace to set us free from the temptation to boast and to set us free from our divisions from one another, 
don't lose heart simply because I'm in prison. In fact, don't lose heart over anything. Don't lose heart. The temptation to lose heart comes from a a very uh, simple set of propositions. Uh, One is that God is in control. Um, Everything that Paul has said up to this point uh, is talking about the the tremendous degree to which God is in control. Um, It's one of the reasons I wanted to read that song. Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. All that He pleases. Uh, there is nothing that God wants to do that he does not do. Not that he cannot do. There is nothing that God wants to do that he does not do. He does everything that he wants to do. God's in control. Um, We might have also read Psalm 23, because not only is God in control, but God promises good things to his people. Uh, That beautiful psalm that probably most of us uh, memorized when we were little children, even if we weren't Christians, a lot of us uh, are probably familiar with it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. On and on like this. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that wonderful? And Paul is in prison. God does all that he pleases. He's promised care and good things to his people, and Paul is in prison. And not only is Paul in prison, but some of us are poor, some of us are sick, Some of us have uh, trials in our marriages. Some of us have rotten bosses at work. Some of us have terrible co-workers. Some of us have rotten neighbors. Some of us have kids that we can't manage. God's in control. He's promised us good things. And Paul's in prison. And we have terrible things in our lives too. What is going on? This is a major problem. There is, in fact, a lot of suffering in the world. Man, we are so oblivious to it around here. I mean, even, the, even those of us who have it the worst around here are, are pretty oblivious. Uh, there's places in the world where people are born and then starve to death. Like, immediately. There's places in the world where people are born and they grow up and they just never, all they get to do is uh, gather food in a little area and then die. They're sick. Uh, They don't have resources and that's their life. There's a lot of suffering in the world. Isn't God good? Doesn't he love us? Isn't he powerful? And that's uh, the problem that Paul is addressing in this passage. How can this be? How is it possible? What does this mean? So let's point out um, 
that there are at least, I think there's a, a way of thinking about it. There's three ways to suffer, three reasons to suffer. One, um, you can suffer because of bad things that you've done. Um, you made bad financial decisions, and now you're poor. Uh, you decided not to go to work, and now you're poor. Uh, you um, smoked for 50 years, and now you have emphysema. Um, that's one kind of suffering that there is. Um, now, we gotta be careful there, because uh, a lot of the time, that, that way of thinking about suffering, if we think about that as the only way to suffer, we're kind of right back in the self-righteousness area. We're kind of right back in the boasting. Well, I'm not suffering, so it must be those people who, who uh, are in those terrible parts of the world, uh, they must be worse people than I am. Um, and, that, the other, and that brings us to one of the other uh, causes of suffering, and that's senseless suffering. There's a lot of suffering that just seems to have no cause at all. They're not suffering because they're, they're guilty of anything. In fact, you got, might have two people, both of them smoked for 50 years, one of them got emphysema, and one of them lived to be 90 and died of, of old age. Uh, there's such a thing as bad luck. Uh, even the Bible even says so. Is it surprising to you that the Bible says that there's such a thing as bad luck? from a certain point of view, right? The Bible says, I returned, this is in the book of Ecclesiastes, I, I returned and saw that under the sun, the race does not go to the swift, the battle does not go to the strong, uh, bread does not go to men of understanding, uh, riches do not go to the diligent, but time and chance happens to them all. Other uh, parts of the Bible describe that sometimes the wicked prosper. Uh, sometimes good things come to bad people. Sometimes bad things come to good people. Sometimes suffering is senseless from our point of view. And then finally, and this is Paul's situation, there is suffering for righteousness. And again, we don't want to jump too quickly to this. Because I think a lot of us, like, if our boss is mean to us, we think it must be because I'm a Christian. That's got to be what it is. It can't be because I'm lazy and I don't show up on time. It can't be because I'm bad at my job. It's got to be because I wore that Christian t-shirt that one day. That's what it is. You know, it's possible. But, you know, don't jump too quickly to that conclusion. But Paul actually is in prison for righteousness. He's not it's not just in spite of the fact that he's such a diligent servant of Jesus. It's not just in spite of the fact that he's laying down his life and suffering cold and shipwrecks and being beaten with sticks and being beaten with whips and all of having broken bones and being stoned nearly to death, all of these things. It's not just in spite of those things. It's because of those things. He's, in fact, in prison because he was preaching Jesus because he was following Jesus. Very, very clearly so. I mean, of those three kinds of suffering, suffering because of your guilt, suffering uh, without guilt, or senseless suffering, and, and suffering because of righteousness, I think it's hard for me to figure out which one is the worst. They're all, they're all very hard in their own way. I mean, on the one hand, if you're suffering because of guilt, recrimination and kind of beating yourself up, if only I hadn't, if only I hadn't, if only I hadn't. That could really exacerbate your suffering. Um, but senseless suffering of why, 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 why? This would be easier to bear if I knew what the cause was. That's real too. Um, and suffering for righteousness, on one hand, it can be, there could be a kind of comfort in it. Well, at least I know. 
At least I know that this is for good. At least I know that I'm suffering for Jesus. But on the other hand, injustice can be really frustrating, really hard to bear. It's not right. This would be easier to bear if I had done something to deserve it. Could also be a thing that you would say when you're experiencing that. So then there's, in all of that, uh, two mistakes that we can make in the way that we think about suffering. Two errors. Um, and there, these, are, these are maybe the, these are the two approaches um, that uh, one, most people have uh, to suffer. You fall into one camp or the other or kind of oscillate between the two maybe. But one is to, uh, is to say the way to deal with pain is to ignore the pain. Pain's not real. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Keep your head down and power through. Um, suffering's not real. It's an illusion. This physical, in fact, these are, some, you know, these are some philosophical and religious positions, right? The physical world isn't even real. It's a, that's an illusion. And if the physical world is the cause of your suffering, then ignore the physical world and you can ignore the pain and you can outgrow it and you can uh, achieve enlightenment and get beyond it. Um, Man, I, if you're really, really in pain, uh, I'm not sure how comforting that is. Um, that can, maybe that can help with mild pain. But has that ever helped you with serious pain? That's pressing in on your soul, pressing in through your body onto your soul, uh, pressing on your mind because of circumstances. The torment of some kinds of suffering. Um, and the other mistake is to say, well, if you just keep being good, just hang in there, and eventually good things will come to you, or, you, or, or eventually you'll see. Um, everything happens for a reason, and it's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Uh, and that's also not going to be terribly comforting. Like, in, fact, in fact, the Bible says don't do that. Uh, there's a proverb that says uh, <laughs> that... Singing songs to someone who has a heavy heart is like pouring vinegar on baking soda. All right, so someone's hurting, someone's in emotional pain, and you're like, cheer up, cheer up, cheer up. It's like, here's some baking soda, there's some vinegar. You know, and it explodes. Uh, I can act, I can, all that does is make it worse. But Christianity says this. Christianity says, don't ignore the pain. Think more deeply on it. Don't ignore it. Think more deeply about it. Christianity doesn't say, keep being good and eventually good things will come to you. But Christianity says, bad luck is real. And suffering may seem senseless for your whole life. The moment may never come in your whole life where you go, now I see why that bad thing happened. That really made, in fact, probably that's never going to come. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes you just have those moments. You can see, wow, I can see that I'm a better person because of that. And all that, uh, you know, those, as a, one passage in the book of James says, if you uh, rejoice when you fall into all kinds of trials because the trying of your faith works patience. And that's a good thing. And sometimes you'll see that fruit. But sometimes you won't. And Christianity acknowledges that. And Paul is acknowledging that in this passage. Because what he says, what he's pointing to, 
is that the way that the gospel of Christianity, the way that the gospel of Jesus Christ deals with suffering is neither to say ignore it, neither to say uh, everything is going to be okay eventually, but to say God joins us in our suffering. Right, that is why uh, Paul goes out of his way in this to reiterate, talking about the unsearchable riches of Christ. What are the unsearchable riches of Christ? Well, it's everything that he's been talking about in chapters 1 and 2, and central to that is that God has joined us in our suffering, that God looks at the human condition. And, and instead of telling us, here's the solution, I'm, you know, do this, do this, do this, and everything will be fixed, he says, I'm coming to be one of you and to fall under the knife with you. Yes, I'm in control. Yes, I love you. Yes, I promise you good things. No, I'm not going to tell you how it's going to work out. But what I am going to do is come and be with you in it. I am not going to put you through anything. I'm not going to ask you to go through anything that I'm not going to go through myself. Because of that, Jesus in his life, when we look at it, he empowers us to face the experience of suffering. He empowers us to suffer for the sake of others, and he defeats suffering himself. Because this is what happens. When God comes and says, I'm going to fall under the knife with you, I'm going to join you in the pain, I'm going to join you in the muck, in fact, it's going to be worse for me than it was for any of you. On the other side of that, he's raised from the dead. See, he conquered death by submitting to it. He didn't conquer death by coming in this display of power, as we would expect. The Christian gospel is that God conquers death and suffering by falling under it. It's like Tinkerbell drinking the poison for Peter Pan, right? Because she drank it up, Peter is saved from it, right? Jesus comes and drinks death and suffering for us so that when we fall under it, it can't harm us. It can't destroy us. Because he was raised from the dead, our suffering uh, has that hope. And what we see what we see is God's tremendous power over suffering. And that is why he talks about this plan and purpose. Look at, look at verses 8 through 11. Right, to me, for I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery, the uh, hidden uh, for ages in God. First of all, let me pause for a second and say, notice how many times in this he talks about being given the gift and the grace. Being, he's in fact the least of all the saints, he says, the, the, the lowest of all of God's people. And he counts the, the suffering that he's going through, he considers it a gift. He considers it a privilege to be suffering this way. Because it brings to light the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the note this phrase, the manifold wisdom of God 
might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The manifold wisdom of God. Um, the Greek word is really hard to capture in English. Uh, manifold is, is okay, um, but doesn't quite get the, the depth, doesn't quite get the beauty that's implied by it. Um, multicolored would be a word. Um, many splendored would be a word. Uh, the light, it's the light that's coming off of a diamond in the sun. It's the light that's coming through a prism. Um, it's the white, hot, clean, clear wisdom of God being refracted through his diverse church so that all of the colors can be seen. Right? White light coming through a prism and exploding in all of the colors that are within it so that we can see, so that it can be displayed. Um, So he's, he is orienting this to everything that he's been saying before about tearing down the walls, about the church being diverse. Um, and, you know, it, it is. I mean, we talk in this country, uh, and rightly so, a lot about um, the segregation that still exists in the church. Um, that in most Christian churches, you really have, a, you have one dominant culture or another. Um, you know, maybe there's some understandable reasons for that. People tend to be most comfortable worshiping in a language and in a style that's familiar to them. Okay. Um, maybe something about worshiping God should be uncomfortable, but okay, we get it. Um, but the fact of the matter is, God's church is tremendously diverse. Do you know, I mean, it's a popular uh, misconception, I think, in this country, in the West, in Europe and in America, I think, to think about the church as, as the white man's religion, as the Western, European, North American white man's religion, and anybody else is sort of foreign to it. I mean, this was one of Malcolm X's uh, you know, major tools when he was trying to uh, draw African Americans to his cause. He would say, why don't you abandon that white man's religion and, and embrace a black man's religion, the nation of Islam? Uh, but the fact is, Christianity is not a white man's religion. Christianity begins in, in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago among brown people. And it spreads among brown people in Asia Minor and in the Middle East and North Africa in Ethiopia and into Europe. And eventually through history, sort of the center of gravity moves into Europe. And in our day, uh, the center of gravity has been in the West for a long time. And yet, the places where Christianity is growing the fastest is in Africa and China, and it's not going to be long before the center of gravity of Christianity has moved back in that direction. And like, when you say that Christianity is the, the white Western European religion, what you're saying to all of those people for 2,000 years is that you're foreign to your own religion, the one that you uh, grew up in or the one that you have converted to because you find the truth of it so compelling. And that's just, it's just not true. Throughout history, there are... There are two point some billion Christians in the world. It's over a third of the world's population. And it's in South America, and it's in North America, and it's in Africa, and it's in China, and it's in Japan, and it's everywhere. And that diversity of God's church, Paul is saying here, displays the many-splendored, the multicolored, the glory of the light of the wisdom of God 
in saving. The, why the wisdom of God? Because of his ability to reach all of God's ability to reach all of those people in all of those different places and all of those different languages. Now, all of those different cultures, that Jesus Christ is so compelling that he crosses all of those boundaries. And God's able to work that out. God's able to bring us together around him. He does this according to his eternal purpose. And this is a, God's wisdom, his skill in doing this is so hard to describe. Uh, there's one metaphor for it. Um, that has always been very compelling to me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal brazenly from J.R.R. Tolkien here. Um, adapt from J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, so picture this. To try to understand what he's talking about with God's wisdom and his plan and how incredible it is. So picture with me. You are at a jazz concert. Huge concert hall. And... As you sit down and uh, the concert begins, uh, the band leader is conducting. And it's a band, it's an orchestra, it's huge. Many instruments, many different kinds of instruments. He begins to conduct and it's a, and it's a pretty melody and it's, this is very nice, this is cool. You, you're getting into the feeling of it, but then uh, one of the musicians, very loud one, begins to, seems to go completely off script. Uh, he starts to play something that's completely clashing with everything that you're hearing. And you kind of expect a little extemporaneousness with jazz, but this is weird, and it does not sound good. In fact, it sounds really bad. In fact, other musicians seem to get pulled off key and off tempo, and, be, and it gets, starts this grinding, clashing, banging sound against the pretty, beautiful melody that you were hearing. And it builds, and this kingdom of bang and blab begins to grow. And, and you, can, you can listen in, you can hear the beautiful part, but then this other horrible part is, is overwhelming. And people are, people are trying to leave, the doors are locked, and the band leader seems oblivious. What is he doing? He's just conducting along as if nothing's wrong here, but obviously something is wrong. How can this sound so bad? And then after what seems an eternity of this horror, he puts down his baton, and he stops conducting, and he picks up a tin bugle, a low instrument, not a pretty instrument, and, and puts it to his lips. What is happening here? And suddenly, over top of all of this horrible sound, this clean, clear, bright note, and a new melody that's sad and a little painful. But as you hear it, suddenly everything comes into focus. Suddenly it all begins to sound beautiful. Suddenly even what you heard as horrible and ugly, this new melody is capturing it and bringing it into the, to the beauty of the whole. And it seems like the, this the musicians that are playing the ugliness, like they're trying to make it ugly, but they can't resist the beauty that's being worked in this. Now, what kind of a, of a musician would be able to anticipate how badly his musicians would wreck his music in such a way to write the song ahead of time, to anticipate it, and then play himself 
to capture and bring it all together. And that is what God has done in Jesus. All of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the horror in the world, with all of the beauty of a, of a sunset and of a child's laugh. Jesus is born. God himself comes down. And a completely unexpected song begins that ties it all together, that overwhelms the pain and suffering and, and captures it and gives it meaning. Life is full of inexpressible beauty and inexpressible pain. In some ways, there's no making sense of it. But God has become one of us. He suffered as thoroughly as any of us and more. And God raised him from the dead. God came and suffered and was raised from the dead. Those truths give Paul his courage. That truth allows Paul to face his suffering. And so this so that what he says, right, whose prisoner is, G, is Paul here? Whose lock and key is he under? It is Emperor Nero. Like, one of the worst tyrants in the history of the world. That's his captor. But Paul sees this message of Jesus so clearly and knows whose he is that he knows that he is not Nero's prisoner, but he is Christ's prisoner. I am here because Jesus wants me here. I am not here because Nero wants me here. I'm here because Jesus wants me here. I am right where the Lord wants me. And I can see, I can see even now, that the message of Jesus and his death and his resurrection give this suffering of mine meaning and beauty that I could never have imagined or never foreseen. And so he tells us not to lose heart. Don't lose heart. In fact, take heart. In the unsearchable riches of Christ, in the demonstration of God's plan, in the working of God's eternal purposes, in the manifold, multicolored, many-splendored wisdom of God, we have seen what God is willing and able to do with our suffering. So those three ways to suffering, the guilty kind, the senseless kind, the righteous kind, Christ's death empowers us in all of them. Empowers us in them. He empowers us in the guilty suffering because he sets us free from our guilt. He empowers us in our senseless suffering because his song gives meaning to the senseless suffering that we are under. And he empowers us in righteous suffering because we can see that in that our suffering is like his. That Paul says, don't lose heart because of my suffering for you because it is your glory. Because he knows what God did in Christ, because he knows what he did raising him from the dead, he knows that his own suffering is also for those people, for others, and it, and it is their glory. So by one of the Psalms, Psalm 46, says, uh, it says, even if the earth gives way, even if the mountains should fall into the sea, um, we still know that we belong to the Lord. And notice that it's not saying if we belong to the Lord, the earth will never give way. Notice that it says if we belong to the Lord, 
It doesn't say if we belong to the Lord, then the mountains will never fall into the sea. The ground will always be firm under us. No. But even if, even if the earth melts, even if the mountains crash down, even if the seas overwhelm the land, even then, God's virtuosity, His artistry, His power in our suffering is visible. And so, as He says, we have boldness and access to Him. We have boldness and access. Um, and now He's going to begin to pray again. And now, when we're going to look at that prayer, we'll begin to look at it next week. We can see how and why He is able to pray the tremendously brazen things that he prays in that prayer, because through all of this, God has given us boldness and access to himself. We're not left outside, we're brought in. And in a moment, because of that boldness and access, we can come to God's own table, the table of our Father, without fear, without groveling, but boldly access his presence, boldly come and sit and eat with him and be fed by him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have promised to us. Thank you for what you have demonstrated to us in Christ. Thank you for the immeasurable beauty of what you have done in him. Thank you for the demonstration of your manifold wisdom, your power, your purposes. Thank you that because of what we have seen, of what you are able to do, you took the greatest injustice that the history of the world has ever seen, the murder of the, son of, the innocent Son of God, and you turned it into the glory and the beauty of the resurrection of Christ. If you are able to do that, we know that you are able to do the same with our measly suffering and our measly lives and to give our lives the same meaning by capturing them, making us your prisoners and making our lives fit into the story of Jesus. Amen.